Good morning, 10 o'clock. Welcome back. For those of you who've been on spring break, I want to officially welcome you back to real life tomorrow. It all begins again, so you're welcome. Glad you're here today. Uh, we're in week two of a series called Living Free, and uh, we're studying for 10 weeks the Ten Commandments. So if you have your Bibles or a device with some kind of app, grab them and go to Exodus chapter 20 with me. Exodus chapter 20. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, Exodus is the second book in the Bible, so it's really easy to find. Just go to the beginning, flip over a few pages, and you'll find it. Exodus chapter 20. Well, as I was preparing for this message this past week, God kept bringing to mind a story that Jesus told in Luke 15 of two sons. But he wasn't bringing to mind, bringing to mind the part of the story that focuses on the younger prodigal son, uh, instead, I kept going back to the part of the story that focuses on the prodigal's oldest brother. Older brother, I might say. That's the part of the story that often gets overlooked, that never gets told. You see, as the younger prodigal is off in a foreign land, living in debauchery, wasting all that his father had given him, the older brother's at home, being faithful to the dad. He's loving his dad, honoring his dad, obeying his dad, uh, he truly is the faithful brother out of uh, brothers out of the two. And so when this younger brother finally decides to come back home and the dad not only takes him back but throws a party over his homecoming, the older brother, he gets angry about it. So angry, in fact, that he won't go into the party. And finally it's just him and dad and, and he basically says to his father, hey, your son, won't even call the kid his brother, your son, he basically gave you the finger took all your stuff, wasted it away, ruined his life. Now he's back begging for your forgiveness. And dad, you just take him in. You just take him in. And you not only take him in, but you throw a party for him. Dad, you killed the fattened calf for my heathen brother. I I've never gotten a party like that. Like you've never given me and my friends a young goat to celebrate with. It's almost like he's saying to his dad, uh, your heathen son comes back and you roll out the red carpet and offer Ruth's Chris. I've been here the whole time. I've never ordered off the dollar menu at McDonald's. And I love the dad's reply. He says to his older boy, you're right. You're right. You've been here with me the whole time. Never dishonored me. Never disobeyed me. Never bailed on me. And I love this. He says, and son, all that belongs to me belongs to you. But we had to celebrate. You see, your brother who was lost, he's been found. Your brother who was dead, he's alive. That's cause for celebration. Now, when Jesus first told this story, he did so to illustrate to both the religious and the irreligious just how God feels about people who are far from him. You see, in the crowd that day, there were sinners, there were tax collectors, and then there were Pharisees. And Jesus wanted the sinners and tax collectors to know that regardless of how they had lived their lives, that if they would come humbly to God, he would welcome them in with open arms. That's good news for some of us today, isn't it? Because some of us, let's be honest, we're like the prodigal. We're far from God and we know it. And the good news is you have nothing to earn, nothing to prove, nothing to fix. He's a good father who loves you. And if you'll come back to him, all that you'll know is grace and acceptance. Great news. Now, for others of us, we're more like the religious older brother. Jesus wanted the Pharisees to know that their good works couldn't earn their way into heaven. 
Their good works couldn't earn the grace, the love, the acceptance, the favor of God. He wanted religious people to know that, that kill it at all things church and religious, that they are in need of the same grace of God as the sinful person who's far, far from him. And so Jesus, he's making clear to us this is a story for all of us. And with that in mind, I would say that we all have a lesson to learn from the story about freedom. And I'll explain, okay? Uh, Last week I mentioned that we are a part of a culture that sells us on the false idea that freedom means doing what we want to do. You know that. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. And so the temptation is to read a story like that of the two sons and to assume that the free son was, was which son? Come on. Yeah, the younger son, the prodigal son. And why? Because he's the one that did what he wanted to do. But was he really free? Not by a long shot. I mean, after his stuff and his money ran out, the kid found himself hanging out with pigs, starving to death. That's not freedom. That's slavery. It's misery. As we learned last week, and and you can write this back down if you're taking notes, if I can get to it. Look, here we go. Freedom isn't doing what you want to do. Freedom is living how you were meant to live. Now, answer this. Based on this biblical definition of freedom, which son was the free son? All right, come on, 10 o'clock. Wake up. Let's go. Which son was the free son? The oldest son. Right. He was the one at home with dad, experiencing the father's presence, the father's love, the father's blessing. He was living life the way it was meant to be, yet, yet he missed that he was free. He missed that he was free. You see, instead of enjoying the freedom that belonged to him because of the grace of his father, he was working for it, which is why he got mad at his dad for throwing a party over his brother's homecoming. His brother hadn't been working like he had, and all of a sudden, here's grace and blessing. Listen, I don't know where you find yourself in the story, but I need you again to understand today that this is what's true. That freedom isn't acting like the prodigal and running from God and doing what you want to do. Freedom is living under the grace and blessing of God, living how you were meant to live. When I read that story of the prodigal, I just wonder if part of his problem was that he saw his dad in the same way some of us see God. Like, I wonder if he thought of his dad as that overbearing, power-hungry dictator that's all about rules, all about commands. He's trying to make us miserable, trying to strip away our freedom and fun. That his rules and commands aren't meant for our good. Uh, They're given so that we can prove ourselves and earn his love. I mean, that's how most teenagers view their parents, right? Come on, we got an amen right down here. Mom in the house, she ain't playing. Listen, it's true. Most teenagers, when they think about the rules, and I was this teenager. So teenagers in the room, I'm not trying to bust on you, right? I'm, I'm preaching to us. Most teenagers would say, mom and dad, give me rules to make me miserable. Give me rules to kill my fun. Give me rules so that I can prove myself. Hear me, hear me. If that is your view of God, you are on the spiritual maturity level of a teenager. And I do not say that to poke you or to be a jerk. I say that because I love you and I want to help you grow past that. Your view of God stands in stark contradiction to what God has told us about himself. You see, through Jesus and through the Bible, God tells us that he is that good loving father that we just sang about. He loves us so much that he set us free from sin, from spiritual slavery, from death. 
And it's out of his loving Father's heart that he gives us rules and commands to follow that we might live within the freedom he's provided. I tried to give you a picture of this last week when I talked about my daughter, who's four years old, playing in the road uh, versus playing in the yard. Right? Imagine that she came to me today and said, Dad, I really want to go play on Highway 41. And I said back to her, well, babe, because I love you so much, uh, I'm going to let you. Why don't you just go do whatever you want to do? Be careful. That's not love, is it? That's indifference. Look, because I love my daughter, I've set boundaries up for her because I know that true freedom isn't found in the middle of the street. It's found in the safety of the yard. God knows the same about us. I find it fascinating that God loves us so much that he refuses to remain indifferent. See, he he knows that true freedom isn't doing what we want to do. Instead, true freedom is living as we were meant to live. So out of his great love for us, he gives us rules and commands which provide the pathway into freedom. All right, with that in mind, we're going to dive back into the Ten Commandments. So uh, if you have your Bibles open, Exodus chapter 20, we're going to start reading in verse 4. This is commandment number 2. This is God speaking, and here's what he says. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above uh, or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." Now, before we dig into that, let me just encourage you. If you were not here last Sunday, please, 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 as soon as possible, uh, pull up your Cross Point City Church app on your mobile device, your tablet. If you don't have it, you can download it for free from the app store. But pull it up or go to our Facebook page, go to crosspointcity.com, and watch last Sunday's message. All right, commandments one and two, they go hand in hand. And the other eight commandments, we'll see this in the coming weeks, they hang on the first two commandments. Which means if you get the first two commandments wrong, you will inevitably get the other eight wrong. In commandment number one, God calls us to worship him and him alone. Commandment one calls us, uh, in essence, to worship the right God. God says, have no other gods before me. For example, if my wife came to me and and she said, James, look, I love you. You're my husband. But there are some other men I want to see. And so to honor you and to respect you, I just want to know where you would like them. You want me to put them in front of you, uh, beside you, behind you? Well, my answer would be none of the above, right? I'm your husband, and I will not compete with any other men. That's what God's saying in in, uh, commandment one. I'm God. There's one God. I'm it. I will not compete with any other gods in your life. Worship me and me alone. Now, commandment number two, God calls us in that commandment to worship the right God in the right way. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Easy way to think about it. Commandment one is about who we worship. Commandment number two is about how we worship. And God tells us that in order to worship him in the right way, we must avoid idolatry. I mean, we just read it. He says, don't make a carved image. Don't create a likeness of anything that's in the sky, on the earth, or in the sea below. Now, when God said this to his people way back in in, uh, Moses' time, it would have clicked immediately. They would have heard that and just thought to themselves, we know what God means. You see, seven weeks before this moment in Exodus 20, God freed his people from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And while in Egypt, they were surrounded by carved images, a.k.a. idols. 
the Egyptians were known for worshiping many false gods. And oftentimes they represented those false gods in the form of animals. God saying to his people, don't worship me like that. Don't worship me like that. I'm not like anything you see in creation. I'm not like a bird. I'm not like a horse. I'm not like a shark. Do not try to portray me as something that I'm not. Listen, here's the big problem with idolatry. And this is the reason God tells us not to do this. It reduces the character and nature of God to a lesser thing. I mean, think about it like this. God, he is uh, omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere at all times. He's eternal. He's infinite. He's living. He's loving. He's gracious. He's kind. He's able to save. Well, if you and I try to reduce that God down to a little statue or a picture, or we try to carve something into a piece of stone to portray him or represent him, in essence, we deny his very being. All we have now is some dead, lifeless, powerless thing unable to save anyone. Now, I know what some of us are probably thinking. Well, James, that's great news because we don't do that anymore. I mean, I look around in our culture today and I don't see anybody carving statues or, you know, creating images. Let's be careful. Like what I don't want us to do is to fall into what C.S. Lewis terms chronological snobbery where we look back on these people and because they were primitive and they made idols, like we start to assume we're better than them. Look, we're not better than them. Yes, they carved idols. Yes, they created images. We, at the same time today, we practice idolatry. Ours just looks different than theirs. And I'm going to give you four modern-day practices of idolatry to prove my point, all right? If you take a note, you can write these down. Number one, creating God by imagining things. Uh, I once heard it said that in the beginning, God created man in his image, and ever since, man has been trying to create God in his. How true is that? Just let it sink in for a moment. In the beginning, God created man in his image, and man has been trying to create God in his ever since. As people, we prefer a God that we can get our hands around. As people, we prefer a God that we can control and manipulate. And so oftentimes what we'll do is we'll use our imaginations to create a God of our own choosing and our own liking, and that's the God we'll worship. Hear me, that's idolatry. It's idolatry. If you've ever found yourself thinking these words or saying these words, I like to think God is or I think God is like, look, you're guilty of this. Here's how it often sounds in our culture today. Uh, you know, I like to think that God, he, uh, he's the kind of God who's kind enough to allow people to figure out what makes them happy, and then he encourages them to do that. I, I don't like to think that God punishes sin or judges sinners, but instead he shows mercy and grace to all people regardless of who they are or what they believe. Or what about this? This is timely because it's an election year. You know, I like to think of God more as a Democrat. Or I like to think of God more as a Republican. That's why I vote the way I do. All we need to do is look at your Facebook page to see which side of the political idolatry fence you fall on, right? I'm sure we could dream up and think of examples uh, all day long of how we do this, but here's the point. Hear me. Anytime you use your imagination to create a God of your own liking, you have broken commandment number two. Let me just say something to you. It, it might sting a bit, but I promise I'm saying it in love. Hear me. It doesn't matter what you think about God. It doesn't matter what some author or philosopher or some celebrity thinks about God. 
It doesn't matter what your professor over at Highlands or KSU thinks about God. All that matters is what God tells us about himself. This is why here at Crosspoint, the word of God is central to our worship. This is the book God gave us to reveal himself to us. It's the way he's chosen to speak today about who he is and what he's done to set us free. And look, if this book is not guiding your thoughts about God, if it's not informing your worship of God, then you are failing to worship the right God in the right way. And that, my friends, is modern-day idolatry. Secondly, secondly, making created things God things. Making created things God things. In essence, an idol is anything that takes the place of Jesus as God in your life. Uh, examples today might include sex, money, power, pleasure, clothes, your car, your house, uh, a relationship, body image, some type of substance, right? It's that thing you look to for peace, for comfort, for joy, for satisfaction, for value, for self-worth. This is why I told you last week that making good things, God things, is a really bad thing. Created things were never meant to be worshipped. Created things weren't designed to terminate on themselves. They were designed to terminate on God who is creator. And I'll explain, all right? You know that everything God created is a good thing, right? Like everything. If you question that, go read Genesis 1, and you'll find God creating and then declaring it good. Everything is good. Now, because of sin, we have taken good things that God has created, and we have perverted them and turned them into bad things. I mean, look at what we've done with stuff like wine, sex, food, money. People have taken these things and made them God things and worshiped them in God's place. Uh, it's why people are enslaved to substance abuse, pornography addiction, obesity, overspending, massive amounts of death, debt. They're worshiping a, a created thing in place of the creator. And I'll give you a practical picture of this. All right, let's say you go out to Longhorn after lunch today and you sit down to a nice big steak. And you take a bite of that steak, and it's awesome, and it just melts in your mouth. Some of us who are hungry, you hate me right now, but just stay with me. It's just awesome. The moment you take a bite of that steak, your natural reaction is to worship. I need you to know, you were designed and created to worship. You're always worshiping something. Your entire life is an act of worship. And so in that moment, you can either worship that piece of meat on your plate or you can allow it to cause you to worship the God who created it, right? So here's how you know the difference. If you take the bite of steak and your reaction is, oh, God, this is good, you're worshiping the meat. If you take the bite and your reaction is, God, you're so good, now we're talking, right? You're worshiping the right person. That's the right response. Can we just be honest? God's the one who created the cow your steak came from. God's the one who created the butcher that cut off the slab of meat that, that is now on your plate. God's the one who created the chef that cooked your steak. He created the fire, the gas, the coals, the spices that went into making your steak what it is. He is the one that deserves to be worshipped. Now look, apply that same logic and reasoning to whatever idol is present in your life, or is potentially present in your life, I should say. Apply it to things like sex, money, power, pleasure, body image, clothes, house, car, relationships, whatever it is, and answer this question for yourself. Have you made a created thing a God thing? Does your worship terminate on a created thing, or does it terminate on the creator? If your answer is the former, look, you're an idolater. You're an idolater. And the danger of this form of idolatry, it's found in Romans 1. 
God might just give you up to your idol. Scary. You see, one of the ways that God judges idolatry is by letting us have what we want in place of him to show us that that thing cannot and will not satisfy us like he can. And unfortunately, look, unfortunately, some people go to the grave still choosing their idol over God. But, but if that act of judgment here in this life leads you back to him like it did the prodigal, it's crazy. The father let his son go, didn't he? Take my stuff and get out of here. That's what you want. If you want that more than me, you go. Ultimately, that led to him coming to a realization, I had it so much better when I was back with dad. If God letting you have that idol to show you that that it can't satisfy like he can, if it leads you back to him, ultimately that act of judgment is an act of love. That's number two, making created things God things. Number three, using created things to gain God. Uh, I've been very blessed to travel all over the world doing mission work. And uh, in my travels, I have experienced some very interesting things. For example, a few years ago when I went to Bolivia for the first time before our church started working there, I sat down with some missionaries, and I asked them to describe some of the religious systems that were in play in their country. And they shared with me about a form of Catholicism mixed with voodoo that is still practiced there today. As part of this system, the people still perform animal sacrifices. Like, I'll never forget walking through the open-air market in downtown La Paz, and uh, all of a sudden I look around, and, and we are surrounded by dead llama fetuses. They're just everywhere. One of their practices is to take llama fetuses and to bury them under structures that they're building as a way of invoking God's blessing onto the project. Now, I know for some of us, that's an extreme example, but it provides a framework for us to understand how we do what they do, how we use creative things to gain God. You see, their problem is this. They believe that, that in order to experience God's blessing, his presence in their life, that they have to use a created thing to mediate their worship of him. And it's really sad. Some of us, we still do this today. Listen, the Bible tells us that there's one mediator between us and God. It's Jesus. He's the go-between for us and him. But unfortunately, at times, we will miss that, and we will still look to creative things to mediate or assist in our worship of God. So, for example, if you're the person who's here today, and uh, you would say, you know what, I can't really worship God in a place like this. Didn't this used to be an old bar or something? I can't believe people celebrate Jesus in here now. I mean, people used to get wasted here. Those are my favorite stories, by the way. When I meet somebody who says, I used to get wasted in the house of rock, and now I'm worshiping Jesus here. It's really weird. I think it's awesome. So, we're glad you're here. But if you would be that person, let me get back on track to say, you know, I can't really worship God in a place like this. Uh, what I need is lots of light, stained glass windows, uh, pews, icons, and images present somewhere. Or, or if you're on the flip side and you would say, no, I can't worship God in a stuffy place like that. I need it dark, loud music. Uh, I, I need it more like what we have going on here at Crosspoint. That's why I'm here. Or... If you're the person who would say, in order to really worship God, I need a hymn book in front of my face. Or no, that's not what I need. I need a, a band on stage and words on the screen. Or, or even this. Like I had people at times come to me when we take the cross off of our stage. Like it's here now, but it's not always here. Because we change it up every once in a while. I'll have people come to me after we do that and act like we have committed some heinous crime. Why would you take the, the cross off the stage? I mean, that should be there somewhere. I mean, should, look at me. All idolatry. All idolatry. If you are looking to a created visual thing, no matter how good that thing may be, to assist in your worship of God, to move your heart toward him, 
you're an idolater. This is why during the Reformation, churches were practically, church buildings were practically stripped bare of all visual elements. The reformers didn't want to risk taking any chance of falling into idolatry by looking to a creative thing to mediate their worship of God. If you're looking to anything outside of Jesus, even this cross on the stage, you're guilty of breaking commandment number two. That's number three. Number four, using God to gain creative things. Using God to gain created things. Uh, a few years ago, I read a powerful book. I have it up here with me on the platform. Uh, highly recommend it. It's by a guy named John Piper. It's called God is the Gospel. And right out of the gates on page 15, he asks a question that just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I just want to read it to you, all right? So just tune in, listen. He says, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters. Here's the question. Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? Could you? Like if life ended today and you got all the benefit of heaven, you showed up and Jesus wasn't there, could you be okay with that? Huge question. And our answer to that question matters because it tells us if we're worshiping God to gain more of God or if we're worshiping God to gain his stuff. Think about it like this. Why are you here today? Why are you here today? Are you here because you want God or are you here because you want something from him? Why do you follow Jesus? Like, do you follow Jesus because you want to enjoy and know the God of the universe? Or do you strive to follow Jesus because you think if you do well enough for long enough that God might just reward you in some way? You see, if your answer is the latter, I would say to you, as lovingly as I can, you have adopted what I'll call the, the God as Santa Claus mentality. Everybody loves Santa, right? And why? Not because he's this nice, jolly guy with a red suit and an awesome beard. Uh, they love Santa because they know if I'm good enough for long enough, he'll give me something. We can't treat God that way. We can't put on some false sense of love for God in hopes of getting something from him. I would venture to say that's why some of us are mad at God at the moment. We've been doing awesome for so long now and we still don't have what we want. We've been coming to church. We've been giving money and serving in a ministry. I mean, dang, we even signed up for a group. And we still don't have that idol. We're leveraging God to get it, and he still hasn't it, given it to us, and so we're frustrated. Not to go off track, but can I just tell you, this is why I hate the prosperity gospel with a, a deep passion. It's this false message from the pits of hell that teaches people to use God to get their idols. Love God, obey God, he'll give you health, wealth, and prosperity. All your bills will be paid, you'll never get sick again, nice house, expensive car. Hear me, if you've bought into that message or one like it, you are an idolater. We can't ever use God to get his stuff. Worship is about worshiping God in the right way to get more of him. Now, let's talk about why idolatry is so serious. Uh, if we haven't caught it yet, let's talk about why it's so serious, all right? Why is it critical for us to worship the right God in the right way? Well, God tells us right in the passage. I mean, we read it a few moments ago. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down these three words, and I'll just walk us through it. Jealous, just, and gracious. 
Why is it so critical for us to worship the right God in the right way? Well, first, it's because God is a jealous God. And hear me, he's not jealous like your uh, stalker ex-boyfriend or girlfriend from high school that keeps friending you on Facebook. That's not the kind of jealousy he is. He's jealous like a husband would be for a wife. To my point earlier, when a husband truly loves a wife, he's not content sharing her with other men. Listen, God is jealous for you because God loves you. He will not be content sharing you with an idol. Now, not only is God jealous, but he's just. He says that he will visit the sins of fathers to the third and fourth generations. Men in the room, would you just lean in with me for just a moment here? I want to speak directly to you if I can for just a moment. Men, if you are a father or you hope to one day be a father and you are at the same time practicing idolatry, you are or you will teach your kids to be idolaters. And here's what's scary and unfortunate about that. According to what God says in this passage, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren will suffer as a result of your sin of idolatry. This doesn't mean that God will necessarily punish them for what you've done. He'll just punish the same sin of idolatry that you continue to pass down and foster in the succeeding generations. Men, huge responsibility on our backs. For those of us who grew up in families that hated God and practiced idolatry, we know this, don't we? We can probably look back at our family line and see generation after generation of parents who who practiced idolatry, chose created things in place of the creator, and suffered for it. Now here's the beautiful news. That's hard news, but there's good news. God's not only just, he's gracious. Can I just tell you today, God takes no joy in punishing sin. It's not like God's sitting up in heaven thinking to himself, love to punish some sin today. Let me go out and find some sinners. I'd love to pour out some wrath and judgment. It'd be an awesome day if I could do that. No, Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel 33, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. You know what God delights in? He delights in blessing us. He delights in pouring out grace and favor onto us as his children, as his people. And here is the beautiful news. Every single one of us in this room today, regardless of the family we've come from, we have a choice. And here's our choice. You see, here's the deal. Let me just say this. Too many of us make excuses. Here's my family. Here's my mom. Here's my dad. This is just who I am because of them. No, you have a choice. Quit making excuses and make a choice. Here's the choice. Do you want to choose to hate God and love the same idols your family has loved for so long and receive justice? Or do you want to kill those idols, put them to death, lay them down, and love God and receive his grace? You see, God says, if you love me and if you obey my commandments, I will pour out my steadfast love and blessing, don't miss it, to a thousand generations. Man, when I read that this past week, and I said I wasn't getting emotional again like I did in the 830, but I might, so forgive me. When I read this this past week, I thought about my dad. Awesome man. My dad was a first-generation Christian. He grew up in a family that hated God. Generation after generation of Griffins had chosen idols in his place. But then in his early 20s, my dad put his faith in Jesus. You see, my mom, who had been far from God for a long time, she came back to God. And she started praying for my dad. And after months and months of prayer, my dad invited himself to church 
And he gave his life to Jesus. Women in the room, can I just say this to you? If you're married to a guy who doesn't know Christ, don't you ever stop praying for him. I know it can be discouraging. And some of you, you might wonder, man, is is prayer going to change anything? Is, Is God hearing me? Does prayer matter? And you might be tempted to throw in the towel and give up. And when you get to that point, here's what I'd say. Pray one more time. Pray one more time. Pray one more time and keep praying. Nothing is too hard for God, which means it can save your husband. How do I know that? Because God saved my dad. He saved my dad. I'll spare you the details, but my dad should have been a statistic. But God saved him. And his faith changed the course for my family. I'm so grateful today that my dad chose Jesus and he chose to pass down not the idols that my family had clung to for so long, but the steadfast love and blessing of God. That's why I'm here today. I can't imagine where I would be if God hadn't saved my dad. Men in the room, that's the responsibility we carry as fathers. God says to us, choose. What do you want? You want your idol or you want me? Choose. What do you want your kids to know? You want them to know your idols, or do you want them to know me? What do you want your family to know, justice or blessing? Men, that's the responsibility. Quit making excuses and make a choice. Women in the room, I would say to you, like if you're sitting here thinking, going, well, my, my kid's daddy's gone. She, she, her daddy's gone. Like my, my husband, he's not there. What do I do? Here's what you do. You play your part. You love God. And you help your children to do the same. And you trust God's promise that he will be a father to the fatherless. And you let him fill in the gaps. That's what you do. Now, as we close, as we close, one last question we got to answer. We've talked a lot about how to worship the right God wrongly. And we've talked about the seriousness of getting it wrong. So how do we get it right? How do we worship the right God rightly? Well, two ways to do it. And I'll throw them up here and I'll just walk us through it. First is this. If you want to worship the right God rightly, you look to the image of God in Jesus. This is where it has to start. Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9 tells us that in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. This is why in John 14, Jesus says to one of his disciples, Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Look, who is Jesus? Jesus is God. If you want to know what God is like, you look to Jesus. If you want to know who God is, you look to Jesus. If you want to know what God has done for you, you look to Jesus. There are no other images needed, no other icons needed, no other mediators needed. Your imagination is not needed. All that's needed is Jesus. You want to worship the right God rightly, you look to him and you worship the image of God found in him. That's number one. The second thing is this. To worship the right God rightly, you bear the image of God in the world. You bear the image of God in the world. Uh, In Genesis 1.27, we're told that in the beginning, God created man in his image. Meaning that God's uh, plan from the beginning was to put himself on display through our lives as his people. He wanted the world to see what he was like, so he created us. That's it. Now, sin's messed it up. Sin has defaced and distorted the image of God in us. But the great news is Jesus died and rose again to fix it. And if we know Jesus as Savior, he sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of our bodies that we might have the power needed to live as image bearers once again. Listen, this reminds us that all of life is to be lived in worship of the one true God. 
I hope you get that. Like, I hope you know that worship isn't just something we do here on Sundays. Worship is something we're called to do every day of the week. So hear me, like, to worship the right God rightly, it's not about just getting up and coming to church on Sundays. Well, if I go to church and I sing some songs and I listen to a dude preach, then I can leave and I can live however I want, and, and, and that's good. I've checked my worship box for the week. No, that's called idolatry. That's called hypocrisy. If that's the way you're living your life, you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping you as God. Worship of the one true God means living as you were meant to live. It means understanding that every day is a chance for you to worship the one true God, and and worshiping him means living as the image bearer he created you to be. You see, God gave his son for you, and he gave his spirit to you that he might put himself on display through you. Want to worship God? Live for that end. Now, finally, in conclusion, promise we're done after this. I find it fascinating that if you'll fast forward just a few chapters past Exodus 20 and Exodus 32, you find Moses coming down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments inscribed on stone tablets. And when he gets to the base of the mountain, he's found that the people have made an idol. They heard commandment number two, and they disregarded it. Now, God, he wasn't too happy about it, and neither was Moses. And so Moses goes to his brother Aaron, who was the guy responsible for the idol. And he says, Aaron, what what in the world are you doing? Like, what have these people done to you to cause them to sin in this way? And Aaron's response, it's almost comical. He says back to his brother, "Uh, well, Moses, you know, you were up there a long time. We all got tired of waiting. The people wanted a God to worship. And so I, I got all their gold. And I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. It's almost like he said to Moses, Moses, it just happened, bro. Just happened. Look, idolatry never just happens. It never just happens. It only happens when we stop looking to Jesus and our hearts drift from him. That's when it happens. It happens when we choose to worship a God other than the one true God. If you're not worshiping the right God, guess what? You won't be able to worship him in the right way. So here's the invitation today. As we set our sights on Jesus, would you lay down your idols? Would you bring them before God and leave them here? Make a decision today to worship him rightly. In just a moment, our prayer team, we're going to have them down front. We're going to sing. Some of you, look, some of you, and I'll just say this, because I just never want to play church. If all we're doing is showing up to go through the motions and then leave, then we're we're just wasting our time. Some of us in this room, we need to get on our faces today. We need to get on our knees today. We need to come and ask for prayer today because there is something in our life that has taken the place of God and we need to lay it down. Some of us walked in, we don't know Jesus. And we need to choose to worship the right God before we do anything else. And so as we respond and sing, again, our prayer team's going to be here. And I'm asking you to do whatever you need to do today to respond in the way God's calling to respond. So let me pray for us. Prayer team, go ahead and start moving up here as I pray. Father, God, would you just move in this place? God, we don't want to miss you today. We don't want to miss an opportunity for you to work in our lives, for you to transform us, to change us. God, some of us are choosing idols over you. Some of us have wrongly believed that created things can offer us more joy and satisfaction than you can. 
And God, we need you to break us today. We need you to convict us today. We need you to show us the error of our way. But God, we also need you to remind us that if we'll come humbly to you, that you'll take us back like that father did the son. That there is grace waiting on us. There is favor and blessing waiting on us. So God, help us today to lay down our excuses and to make a decision. God, move in this place in ways that only you can. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Let's stand to our feet. If you need prayer, you come. If you need to get on your knees, you come. If you need Jesus, you come. We're here waiting on you.